Good morning. My name is Dale Guger. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And uh, I, I serve with my wife. We lead, help lead the orphan care and adoption ministry here. Uh, also have the privilege of helping with worship on some Sunday mornings and on very rare occasions preaching. And I'm glad to stand before you this morning. Uh, I want to start off. This is an interesting text. It's one of those ones, the temptation of Christ in the desert, that uh, you've probably heard before probably heard preached before, or at least have a knowledge of it, because it's, it's such a strange drama. And that drama might be lost on us because of the familiarity we have with the passage itself. Uh, but we have to really kind of set ourselves back in the time that in the great history that unfolded in Christianity, there was a time when our Lord and Savior was here in bodily form on the earth and actually went toe-to-toe with Satan in the wilderness on our behalf. Uh, He gives us an example in that of, one, what temptation can really look like, what it might mean, and how you fight against it. And he did that on our behalf. So I want to start at the very beginning with a story. It's about a man named Frank Buckman, and you might not have heard that name. However, you're probably familiar with his legacy. We'll get there in... uh, just a few short minutes here, but he was born in 1878 in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was uh, ordained as a minister in his early 20s. He'd go on to work for the YMCA, and he developed a passion for evangelism, uh, for gospel outreach, that eventually took him to India, where he became friends with the missionary Amy Carmichael. Some of you might have heard of her. He met Gandhi. Most of you probably have heard of him. And after his time overseas, he worked on college campuses to develop small groups of Christian students at schools like Princeton and Yale. And I'm told the only reason he didn't go to A&M was because there was already enough Christians there. (laughs) Someone hiss? I went to A&M, come on. Bachman eventually developed a ministry called First Century Christian Fellowship, which became a movement dedicated to living in a manner consistent with the priorities of the early church. The group grew large enough to eventually start meeting at St. Mary's Church at Oxford, and soon after started being called the Oxford Group. Oxford Group expanded and started traveling internationally. Buckman went to Germany, where he tried to gain audience with Hitler in order to convert him. Soon after, they left and went to Norway, and after they left, uh, their intent was to spread the gospel, preach the good news. After they left, a Norwegian newspaper made this comment in their Christmas issue. Quote, a handful of foreigners who neither knew our language nor understood our ways and customs came into the country. A few days later, the whole country was talking about God. And two months after the 30 foreigners arrived, the mental outlook of the whole country was definitely changed. Frank Buckman's, uh, he summarized the Oxford Group's core philosophy with these six truths. All people are sinners. All sinners can be changed. Confession is a prerequisite to change. The changed person can access God directly. Miracles are again possible, and that changed person must then change others. I know this seems like a weird biographical note to start a sermon on temptation, but I think you'll get the point here in a minute. Because when a struggling alcoholic named Bill Wilson found his way into an Oxford group in the 1930s, he found in this Christian message and these truths the power needed to overcome his addiction. 
After a year of achieving his own sobriety, he would move into the home of another despondent and lost alcoholic named Dr. Bob Smith, medical doctor, called Dr. Bob by his friends. And the two would go on to launch a small program of their own that would expand the pillars of the Oxford Group into a 12-step program for alcoholics that you might know as Alcoholics Anonymous. It is almost undeniably the largest organization on the planet for dealing specifically with the temptation of alcohol. And I'd ask if any of you were members, but that would defeat the point. What's the reason for this success? In its foundation and its pillars, it asserts true things about humans. Namely, that in the battle against temptation, we are helpless. We have to admit our helplessness. And also, it asserts true things about where our help comes from. It takes God's truth to disarm the temptation of our enemies in order that God's glory would move forward. In our time today, with God's help, we're going to identify what temptation is. We'll define it properly, which is to say it doesn't stop at alcoholism or pornography or drug addiction or any list of vices that we might create. Temptation can extend to our success, our needs, our desires, and how we talk and think about the goodness of God. And we'll also see in exactly what manner Christ is victorious over his enemy in the desert. So let's pray and see what the Lord can show us. Lord, we thank you for this time we have gathered. We thank you for the very real example you became for us in this story in the wilderness. So speak to our hearts directly. I pray, Lord, that for all of us in this room, we would submit ourselves to you, to be changed by you, to know you, to listen to you. So use this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll start off. This is the temptation, what I, what I call sort of the temptation of our needs. Starting in verse one, Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. As the story picks up, let's remember the passage from last week that Pastor Kevin went over tells us about Christ's baptism. And it was kind of this great family reunion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on earth that served as Christ's basic coronation before his ministry began. In Luke's gospel, it's immediately followed with a genealogy, which uh, I don't think any of us would necessarily have included if we were writing the gospels ourselves for the narrative flow of it. But it matters when we understand the importance, which is how it ended. Pastor Kevin made this point. It ended with the dual role of Christ, which is son of Adam, son of God. Both aspects of this nature matter, and in his success in the wilderness and on the cross, Christ is dependent on both of those aspects. So starting off, Jesus is leaving the Jordan. He's both full of the Holy Spirit, and he's also being led by the Spirit. Obvious takeaway is that the the position Christ is about to be in, in the desert, is the will of God. He was brought there by the Spirit for what is probably a time of intense spiritual seeking and discernment. And everything that follows is God's doing. 
And even the devil has a specific role to play. The father has led his son into this place, for we can assume, in preparation for his ministry on earth. Occasionally, the Bible speaks in understatements, and this is one of them. He ate nothing during those 40 days, and when they were over, he was hungry. You can put that on your list of non-controversial Bible passages that you can speak about with your friends. I'd be hungry too. As if in response, I'd be dead, probably. As if in response to this, the devil presents what seems, at first glance, to be an innocuous request. You're hungry. You're able. Why don't you make yourself some food? Most of us don't add bread to our list of satanic temptations. Let's run a low-carb diet. We already read a few weeks ago that John the Baptist, he boasted about God being able to raise up children of Abraham from stones. With any kind of cursory knowledge of the Gospels, we know that there's two accounts of Jesus feeding large groups of people, one of 4,000, one of 5,000. And what does he do in those accounts? It's a miraculous multiplication of food. Multiplies bread, multiplies fish. Jesus is hungry here. God is able. This should be easy math. And not only that, but at first glance, doesn't Jesus' uh, response seem kind of like a dodge? If someone came into our church hungry, but our response was, man must not live on bread alone, I think we'd seem a little callous. If Christina, my wife, and I hosted a dinner, and instead of food, we just admonished our guests by telling them that they've grown too dependent on food, we'd better have some good board games to play. All of that I say on its face, at a surface level, this temptation barely seems like a temptation. It almost seems like good advice. Is it a temptation to eat when we're hungry? Do we often suffer the temptation of putting gas in our car when it's running on empty? Let's look at Christ's response in the context of the scripture he quotes. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, just a part of it. Quote, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I think this helps a little. Man does not live on bread alone is not a, just a phrase by itself. It's a juxtaposition. Satan says, if you are the son of God, prove it by doing this simple thing. Jesus, on the other hand, knows that God can use hunger to help us understand our dependence on him. And not only that, but I think we can read into this text that Christ also knows that if God wanted to solve a problem like hunger, he could do it miraculously, and he doesn't need the devil's goading in order to do it. A powerful example of trusting the Lord in our need, I think, comes from Hudson Taylor, who some of you might know as one of the first and earliest and well-known Christian missionaries to China. Hudson Taylor, he was determined to make himself as dependent on the Lord as possible prior to his going. He wanted to really, you know, show his dependence on the Lord. He wanted to trust the Lord in all things. So one of those things was he agreed that while he was raising money for the mission, he would never solicit funds from anyone. He would just pray that the Lord would provide. It's similar to George uh, Mueller in his, in his ministry philosophy. Now, we support a lot of ministries, uh, missions at this church that do raise money intently. We don't think it's a bad thing, but if that's the conviction you think the Lord has brought you to, 
That's the conviction the Lord's brought you to. He wouldn't raise any money. But in his personal life, he took it much further. He learned how to live on one-third of his income working for a medical doctor so that he could give away the other two-thirds. He learned how to be comfortable without eating butter because he said, I don't need butter anymore. His employer also paid his salary quarterly. And his employer was a Christian man, good doctor, but he said, I'm a little bit forgetful. I'd like it if you would remind me whenever, whenever your salary comes up so that I remember to pay you. I just might forget. Hudson Taylor said, quote, this I determined not to do directly, but would ask God to bring the fact to his recollection and thus encourage me by answering prayer. So, guess what happens? Comes time for Hudson Taylor's quarterly salary to come up. He's low on money. He has one dollar left. He is compelled by the Lord in a, in a kind of a series of events to give that one dollar away to someone in need. He now has no money. He has no food. He has means. I mean, he's giving away most of his income. He has the ability to intercede on his own behalf. He trusts that he's only going to pray that the Lord would remind his employer to pay him. And sure enough, after over a week of not being paid, eventually he's sitting in the doctor's office. The doctor says, oh, Hudson, I'm so sorry. I forgot to pay you. Have I not paid you yet? Have I paid you? And he goes, no, you actually haven't. It's a little past time. And he goes, well, remind me to pay you on Monday because I've already deposited all of the money into the bank for this week, so I need to get it, and on Monday I'll pay you. And Hudson Taylor says in his biography, he had to leave the room in revulsion so as not to show that he was so upset that he thought the Lord was gonna provide miraculously and then didn't. So he spends the rest of that evening at the office in prayer, in fasting, in study, thinking, why didn't the Lord bring me my money? I thought he was going to. Why did he dangle it in front of me and then take it away? He's still there at 10 p.m. that night when, for whatever reason, a rich patient that owed the doctor money and did pay his medical bill decided to show up at 10 p.m. at night and pay the doctor on a Friday. And the doctor comes in and says, well, one of our patients just settled their debt. I'll pay you with this and I'll give you the rest on Monday. Is that fine? He goes home, miraculously provided for. So, the question, can something as simple as a regular paycheck for our work that we're doing be a temptation? The answer is maybe. Depends on who you think is really paying you. The temptation is for a genuine human need, work that we've done, provision from the Lord. But if we achieve this, we can only have our needs fulfilled within the will of God. We cannot achieve them despite the will of God. Next in the narrative, temptation in our desires. So he took him up, Satan, took Jesus up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. So this is round two. Undeterred, Satan continues to a different, different sphere of influence over Jesus. Maybe bread was too low of a bar. If he's gone hungry for 40 days, what's 41? 
What if I offer him something that would be irresistible on a good day? In some kind of vision, we're guessing, Satan shows Jesus all the glory and splendor of the world and offers it to him. Forget bread. How about a feast? How about power? Then we're going around in the wilderness, serving the will of the Lord. I think there's a lot going on here, but first, is this an empty boast by Satan? He's not powerful like God. Is this even something he can offer? He's referred, to the prince of, he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air. I think Satan has real authority in this world. Uh, he has uh, authority at work in, quote, the sons of disobedience. That's Ephesians 2. And in Matthew 12, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he answers by saying, if Satan were to cast out Satan, how would his kingdom stand? Satan has a kingdom. He is at work. I don't think this is simply an empty boast with no power behind it. In a way, uh, Satan's been deputized on this world. He is in control of things, of people. Satan promises Christ the easy way to power. And I think for you and me, it's easy to fall for the trap of this, uh, of thinking that verse seven makes this a really easy temptation to avoid. That's when Satan says, if you then you'll just worship me. Uh, That's easy, that seems like a red flag. Let's just not worship Satan. Here's what I think we should caution ourselves. Worshiping the devil isn't necessarily as obvious as pentagrams and sacrifices to Molech. Throwing our lot in with the prince of the power of the air might look just like trusting God a bit less. What's at the heart of the original temptation? The serpent whispered, did God really say Satan's crafty. He's probably not going to deceive us with God is wicked. He's probably going to deceive us first with God is holding out. Is that not what he's offering to Jesus in the text? I know a better way to the crown, Jesus. I know how to get what you want. If we want to play a hypothetical mind game here, just for thought, would it not be better if the world right now are physically ruled by Jesus? He could have taken the offer, vanquished Satan, and then ruled the nations with righteousness and an arm that is not weak to save. He could be here. But Christ submitted his will to the Father perfectly. We know at a human level, though, as the son of Adam, Jesus did ask eventually for another way to his glory. What did he pray in the garden? If this cup can pass from my lips... Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but your will be done. I think that is evidence that when we talk of the temptation of Jesus, he's not going through the motions in a pointless dance with Satan where he didn't actually face any real struggle. Satan is hitting an actual pressure point for Jesus here. He lies to him, saying, follow me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what does Christ respond with? Quotes from Deuteronomy again. Here's some more of the context also. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you, a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, 
And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and worship him and take your oaths in his name. And in this passage, Satan is hitting at a real desire. What is Jesus' response? That when God gives you plenty, when he gives you beautiful cities and houses and vineyards or full bank accounts or obedient children or status in the world to be well-regarded amongst your friends, don't forget it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It was the Lord who delivered you. You did not do that on your own. God is the one who blesses. The devil can offer us nothing that isn't borrowed. When the owner comes back, you will lose anything not gained by the will of God. So do not settle for a borrowed kingdom and do not trust anyone other than God to fulfill your desires. For the last temptation, Satan, I think, ups the ante a little bit. He takes him to Jerusalem. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. So this is our third temptation in Luke's narrative. And as far as location's concerned, it's probably something where Jesus isn't physically in Jerusalem. It's just like the kingdoms of the world being shown to him. He is now on top of the temple being shown, being told, trust the Lord. It would just seem odd if he was physically there all of a sudden. So it's probably something that Satan's, Satan's working in his mind. And uh, secondly, it's difficult to know which pinnacle of the temple this might be. Uh, there's several. There wasn't one called the pinnacle. Uh, but it's a guess, and some scholars think that this is true, that it was probably the royal porch on the southeast corner of the temple, which, uh, if the case, that was seated above the Kidron Valley. So if you were standing on it, looking southeast, you would see a drop of about 450 feet. In the nature of the... I just think it's important to know that because when we say I, the, even the word strike your foot against a stone almost seems like a, you twist your ankle or something. Know that you know, Christ might be looking down upon something where he would surely die if he were to throw himself off of it. In the nature of the temptation itself, the devil is saying, okay, so you don't want the kingdoms of the world or at least you're smart enough not to go through me to get them. Good for you. You've trusted the Lord so far. Why don't you trust him for your protection? The devil ups his own game here. He quotes from Psalm 91 to Jesus, which is a psalm about the protection that the Lord offers to those who seek the refuge in him. If God is to be trusted, prove it. If you are who you say you are, prove it. Christ surely finds his refuge in God. He's been led in the wilderness all this time, supposedly to seek the strength and, and the will of God the Father. Satan seems to be asking Jesus to make good on the promises of Scripture. He's using the word of God to demand protection for God's chosen. Just name it and claim it, Jesus, and let the Lord protect you. 
He wants to. I think this is such a pitfall for so many of us as Christians. Psalm 91 is a nice psalm. It falls in the category of psalms that we would read to ourselves and take comfort in. We know that God can protect us. But the way it's being used here is as a ransom against God to force him to bend to our will rather than deliver on his will. That's where the sleight of hand took place. It is not faith in God when we test him with a foolish choice. It is a lack of faith in God when we test him with a foolish choice. It tells God, I only believe your promises will come to fruition if I force your hand. Christ knows this, and he quotes, you guessed it, from Deuteronomy, says that we're not to put God to the test. The rest of the verse says, as you tested him at Massa. What does Massa mean? Massa actually means test. Moses gave it that name. As you tested him at test. This account comes from Exodus 17, the account about Massa, but the summary is, Israel, fresh out of Egypt, is camped out and waiting for the Lord's next order. They notice there's no water, and they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses remembered that place as the place where Israel asked, quote, is the Lord among us or not? And that question that Israel asked is at the root of all of our temptation as well. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord with you or not? And here's where the paradox of the Son of Man and the Son of God has to come into play. I think we should be clear, because just from this narrative alone, we might not know it, but the battle between the devil and Jesus in the desert is not a battle among equals. It's not a battle with a scrappy up-and-comer against the reigning champions. Jesus is the Son of God. He could send Satan out of the desert with a sideways glance if he wanted to. In Christianity, the triune God sits at the throne above all. He can accomplish exactly what he sets out to accomplish. What then was Jesus doing in the desert where he was able to resist Satan but not utterly destroy him? We would, want, we would want our great victor, our great Messiah, to come up against Satan and just crush him. Just win the fight, end it, prove that it's over. But not yet. Philip Yancey says this in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. As I look back on the three temptations, I see that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad, to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and of agriculture, to confront risk with no real danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, to wear a crown, but not a cross. In the same book, Yancey says this, can you be like God, the serpent had asked in Eden? Can you be truly human, asked the tempter in the desert. If we imagine again a world where Jesus just defeats Satan, because he can, he's got the power. If it was a massive display of God's glory, you know, fire raining down. He's done it before, he can do it again. 
if he called on the army of angels at his disposal, which in Matthew's account of the same story, it ends with, with angels coming to minister to Jesus. So they're there, they're in the wings waiting. We'd see God's glory for all of a few moments before ultimately he would have to set his sights on weary sinners like us who are wholly incapable of approaching the throne of the Lord if it is not a throne of grace. And so instead, Christ chose another way. Because you see, when Jesus stood on the temple, facing southeast into the Kidron Valley, being tempted to throw himself off, and the Lord would protect him, he turned instead northwest, where less than one mile away was the hill of Calvary. He could have seen it. And he knew that that was a place where he would be harmed and would receive no protection from the Lord. There's three more temptations of Christ that he resisted. We know the devil left him for a time. But he might return here. You can read about them in Luke 23 when Jesus is on the cross. The people stood watching and the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. It's a mockery. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The criminal has no idea that that's exactly what Christ was doing. He was saving us on the cross. And the salvation of mankind has a twist ending because throughout all of Christ's ministry, he worked plenty of miracles, proving his authority as the one sent by God. But here's one miracle that's easy to forget. The Son of God, despite his veiled glory and the army of angels that stood ready to attend to him and even his own human desire, never used his divine status to exempt himself from the human experience that was necessary for him to become our perfect savior on the cross. Praise the Lord, he did not get off the cross when he had the power to. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 would not be true if he did. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So there is no salvation without a tempted savior. It was part of the package of humanity. And it is because of the Son of God's identification as a son of Adam that we have a throne of grace that we may approach with confidence. When we are tempted, either in need or desire or even in our faith, we should remember that the path of Christ always placed the glory of God back at the center of the equation. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, or whether we go hungry, or whether we abstain, we should do all for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the untold kindness that you have shown us, that we daily take for granted. We look on what is the mercy of God sometimes and we think, where is the power in that? Where is the goodness in that? 
unable to see all the time that you are working in such a way that we do not see. That power for you led you to the cross where Satan was vanquished forever. You showed enough restraint on earth to be human enough to die for us so that you could be our perfect sacrifice. And now, because of that, we can approach the throne of grace in confidence because Christ made the way. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.